morning, everybody. Well, I love to eat. I love to cook. I don't do it as often as, uh, as, as my, my passion for it would, would dictate. I love gathering around a table. I love delighting in good food, good friends, good conversation. Uh, and Decatur is a foodie's dream for sure. Uh, people come from all over the area just to eat. Uh, the very first time I came out here with the pastor nominating committee, they took me to the brick store, uh, the Iberian Pig, and to Revival. Uh, remember that place? So good. Too bad it's not, it's not there anymore. Uh, we've got a uh, James Beard Award winner in The Deer and the Dove. Anybody been to that place? Good? I haven't been yet. Yeah? Worth it? Okay. Uh, well, and there's ample evidence that this is, you know, something that was dear to the heart of Jesus as well. He loved to eat. His first miracle was at a wedding in Cana, and after the host had run out of wine, Jesus famously told the servants to go out and fill up barrels uh, with, with water, and he transformed it into not just the best vintage that the guests had tasted, but uh, the best wine anywhere. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's what his critics said of him. He left us bread and wine as a meal to remember him by, and he centered our lives around a table. Jesus fa feasted, but he also fasted. And most of us are more comfortable with feasting than we are with fasting. Am I right? And as a practice, this has virtually disappeared from the lexicon of Christian discipleship. Uh, in his classic book, The Celebration of Discipline, the writer Richard Foster notes that uh, what was central to the practice of the church for 1,600 years and then started to fade away, and in his research, he could not find a single book published on the topic of fasting between the years 1861 and 1954. Now you are more likely to hear about fasting from a YouTuber or a fitness expert than you are from a pastor. And many of us have a complicated relationship with food. The mere mention of fasting makes your body sort of tense up. We live in a culture where food is plentiful. According to the National Restaurant Association, Americans spend an estimated $863 billion a year on having somebody else prepare their meals. And with the proliferation of apps like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Grubhub, 60% of American households uh, report eating out or having food delivery at least once a week. That number jumps up to 74% among millennials. It's a lot of avocado toast out there in the world. In our culture, three meals a day plus snacks in between is really kind of considered the norm. And in fact, if you have less than that, a teenager in your home will tell you that they are on the verge of starvation. Having maximal variety and choice in what we eat, strawberries 365 days a year, is seen not simply as a good, but increasingly spoken of as a right. And, and, and don't get me wrong, choice in and of itself is not a bad thing. There's no gotcha moment in the midst of all that. It's just to point out that what we actually consider normative is in reality the apex of luxury when it comes to food, with more options now than at any point in human history. And yet, with all that choice... Up to 40% of all of our food supplies in the U.S. go straight into the garbage. 
contributing to food insecurity all over the world. We also live in a culture that increasingly blurs the lines between desire and hunger and appetite. We say things like, I am hungry for Chipotle, when what we mean is that is what I crave, that is what I desire, whether I am truly hungry or not. And the nation that spends the most on eating out in the developed world also spends the most on healthcare as a share of the economy, more than twice the other uh, advanced economies in the world. And yet we have the lowest life expectancy among the top 11 of those nations. Poor diet linked to many of the leading causes of death. Paradoxically, with all of that excess of food, we are also in thrall to the idolization of thinness and thin physiques. And while the ideal body type has changed throughout the ages, we occupy a cultural moment where svelte, lithe forms are held up as normative in advertising, in film, in media, despite genetics and despite the variety of naturally occurring body types in the human person. One of the highest grossing films of the year last year was Barbie. Feminist icon, maybe. Impossible beauty standard, absolutely. And I'm not just talking about Margot Robbie. I mean Simu Liu with his nine-pack abs. I was watching uh, over the shoulder of my, my neighbor on an airplane this week, and I was like, dude, is that, is that CGI? No, those are, those, that's really him? man. And he was like, what is the matter with you? Get your own screen, buddy. (laughs) So many women in particular struggle with body image and the panoply of ideas about what is good, what is desirable, what is sexy. And then this week I was in the checkout line at the grocery store and I could not help but notice the contradiction between the Uh, boxes of king-sized Reese's Fast Breaks on one side of the grocery aisle, and then on the other side, a magazine dedicated to Ozempic as the latest breakthrough in taming our bodies, and the scores of articles about people who are taking the drug not for any sort of medical purpose, but because of its risk-fee promise of reducing body fat by 5 to 10%. All of which begs the question, how is it possible to have a good relationship with our bodies, with food, in a culture of excess and sexualization? And I say all of that not to hate on any sort of shame or guilt. It's all compassion. I'm navigating this culture. I've got two teenage children as well. It's just to point out that we have a really complicated relationship between, with, with food and with our own bodies. We don't know what it is to truly love and inhabit our bodies as a good gift from the creator or or to live with the reality that simply having a desire in those bodies does not mean you must satisfy that desire. Which is probably why fasting is one of the most maligned and least practices of all the spiritual disciplines in our culture. It conjures up images of crazy monks in hair shirts like living a kind of pinched, life-denying spirituality in service to some angry God somewhere. But it's also one of the most ripe in our time for abuse because we carry the deadly uh, lies into this practice about food being bad or about the body being an enemy of the spirit instead of its ally. And as a result, it's a practice that has virtually disappeared among regular practice of Christians in the modern West. 
And I want to say from the outset that our practice guide comes with some pretty heavy disclaimers for this reason, precisely because of these complications that arise with our relationship with our own bodies, with our relationship with food. It, it may very well not be a practice for many of us in this season. And that's not a weakness in any way. I'll say more about that near the end. And yet for all of that, fasting is one of the oldest and most powerful practices. Jesus feasted, but he also fasted. And if we are going to follow him and present our bodies as an offering to God and as a way of weaning us away from disordered attachments, of actually praying with our bodies and joining in God's mission of justice in the world, fasting might just be one of the most powerful means at our disposal through which God transforms us from the inside out. And so as we kick off this series, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. A scene from the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. You think? The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, all will be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, by the power of your Spirit, open to us your word that we may hear what the Spirit is saying to your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The scene I just read follows after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan, where after he steps into the water, the Spirit descends, the heavens break open, and, and the, the Spirit hovers over the waters like a dove. And Jesus is greeted with this affirmation, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And with that, Jesus begins his ministry rooted in an awareness of the Father's love. And we are told from this highlight real moment that the Spirit then drives him into the Eremos, what can be translated as the desert, the wilderness, the quiet place, the lonely place, so that he can pray and fast 
in solitude, in communion with the one he called Father, so that he can also be tempted by Satan. Why would the Spirit do that? Send him to intentionally be tempted. Why a temptation so close to this watershed moment of the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back further to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, where we are told in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And down to verse 7, when the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. There's a play on the words in Hebrew uh, between the words Adam, which means human, and Adama, which means dust. And then there's another play on words for the word breath, which is ruach. And all throughout the Old Testament it used to signify both breath and the Holy Spirit. And so the verse actually reads like this. God formed Adam out of the Adama and breathed into his nostrils the spirit of life and the man became a living being. Which is to say that human is both dust and spirit. We are material, but we are more than material. This is the Bible's picture of an embodied spirituality, that that you are an integrated being, that your body is more than just a shell around which to carry your soul, your body, your mind, your spirit, they are they are interrelated with one another, enmeshed with one another so that you cannot separate the one from the other. You are a body as much as you are a mind, as much as you are a spirit. Story goes on. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all the trees uh, to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, gave him a job to do. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to eat, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die." God puts the embodied being, Adam, into the garden. He gives him a job to do, to take care of the garden. You can eat anything that the garden produces, except for the one thing at the center of it. And then fast forward to chapter 3, the tempter comes again. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Notice there, a nice little embellishment on the, on the story. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit was, of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. You will be better off, the tempter says. Take this food, take it for yourself, eat from it. 
This is the story of the fall, the, the doctrine of the origin of sin. But notice the sin has to do, the mechanism that sin, sin enters the world is through the appetite, with desire, with locating that desire in food. Uh, the tempter appeals to this bodily desire that in itself is part of the good creation. And the sin in question is to deny the relationship that is at the center of that creation, that has provided all that is good in favor of one's own desire. The Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann puts it like this. The world was given to Adam and Eve by God as food, as means of life. In food itself, God was the principle of life. Thus to eat, to be alive, to know God and be in communion with him were one and the same thing. The unfathomable tragedy of Adam is that he ate apart from God in order to be independent of him because he believed that food had life in itself and that he, partaking of that food, could be like God, i.e. have life in himself. Ultimately, the sin isn't about enjoying the goodness of creation. It's about redefining what is good and what is life-giving, not in relationship to God, but according to one's own desire and the voice in one's own head. Sin ultimately is the unwillingness to trust that life with God is truly life. And here, here's where I'm going with this. The, the means of the temptation is not insignificant. It is food. It is something that is part of the good creation. And the distortion of that is what leads to the great unraveling. So then we fast forward to Jesus in the desert and he is not out there just kind of you know, living some sort of introvert's dream he is actually replaying this garden story where once again the temptation is presented to him through food. And the temptation is not in the food itself, but in what it represents. Jesus is not like anti-gluten or anything like that. And the temptation is not because bread is bad or because it would be a sin to eat when hungry. The temptation specific to Jesus in this moment is to find life in something other than what the Spirit sends him out into the desert for, which is to find communion and life in God. To find his life in God, offering his whole self, mind, body, spirit to God. Just as in the garden, doubt is the lever of this temptation. If you are the Son of God, then feed yourself. Take it for yourself Find life in and of yourself. Generate it in yourself. Doubt that God is good. Doubt that God wants for you is going to lead to life. So you got to do it yourself. In the words of the pastor Marjorie Thompson, Jesus kept the fast, refusing to defend to define life apart from God's provision. And as a result, he succeeds where Adam fails, he succeeds where we all fail. And in so doing, he opens up a kingdom for us to enter in his wake. Jesus succeeds by being in relationship with the Father, in union with the Father. And in the desert, he offers his whole self to God, and in return, he gets God. And I used to think that the, this little note that Jesus was hungry meant that Jesus was at his weakest point when Satan comes to him, and that's why he comes to them. Like, oh, what a jerk. Like, pick on him when he's at his weakest. 
But what if it's actually the opposite? What if Jesus is able to refuse this temptation because he is at the very height of his spiritual power? He has spent all this time offering himself to God, feasting on this relationship with God. There's a scene in John's gospel that fleshes out the picture a little bit more fully. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples and he tells them to go get something to eat. They've been at a hard, you know, clip of ministry. And he finds himself in conversation with a Samaritan woman who has come to draw some water out of a well. And after telling her about living water and sending her away into the uh, village to become the first evangelist, the disciples come back to him and they beg him to eat something. And Jesus says this, he says, I have food that you know nothing about. And the disciples are like puzzled by this. What, did somebody slip him some food or something while we were out? Like, who's that lady he's talking to? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And the thing is, he's not just being clever here. Something happens when we fast. In this 40 days, Jesus is offering himself over to God, experiencing firsthand that he does not live by bread alone, that fasting is somehow feeding his soul. Luke tacks on this little note at the end. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So fasting did not empty Jesus. In fact, it filled him up. And fasting was part of the regular practice of the day in the first century Near East. Uh, when Jesus goes on later to teach in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells his disciples, when you fast, and the note there is just to say that he doesn't say, if you fast, he also doesn't say, you must fast. He's just simply noting that this is part of what it is to be a spiritual being, and this is not just the case in first century Judaism. This is present in every major religious tradition. It's, it's present in uh, Plato and Aristotle. They talk a lot about fasting and, and commend the reasons for it. So before we go any further, let me just give you a brief history of fasting. The earliest recorded incidence of it actually is in the Bible with Moses' 40-day fast in Mount Sinai, and it is followed very quickly by a command for all of Israel to fast on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, as this way of preparing the people internally to deal with the reality of their sin. There are stories of fasting all throughout the Old Testament from there. Uh, Moses, David, Esther, the prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, it's kind of like a who's who of the Bible. And by the time of the New Testament, it was a common practice that had been established in the life of Israel to fast twice a week from sunrise to sundown. Uh, this was a practice that was continued on in the early church. The greatest uh, and earliest catechism of the church gave instruction for Christians to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays and for two full days before baptism. Almost all of the church fathers and mothers write on fasting. The Lenten fast originated in the year 325 at the First Council of Nicaea where some very important things about Orthodox theology were, de were determined. And they patterned it after Jesus' desert experience. And in its earliest form, it was this sunrise to sunset fast on Monday through Saturday through the 40 days of Lent followed by a feast every Sunday. 
And then the entire church would feast from Good Friday until Easter Sunday, remembering the 40 hours between Jesus' death and resurrection as a way of getting in touch in their bodies with Jesus dying and rising. During the Reformation, Calvin spent several chapters in his institutes commending fasting as a way of clearing out the ground of the soul. He describes it as a practice whereby we, quote, withdraw something from the normal regiment of living to offer ourselves to God. Prior to the 1700s, fasting was held up as central to the way of Jesus as we would think of things like prayer and scripture reading. Even more so because not everyone had a copy of the Bible. And it is still something vigorously practiced in global streams of the church, such as among the Orthodox and the Coptic traditions, in numerous African, Indian, Eastern Asian churches, and the flowering churches that are currently underground in Persia. So many luminaries of the church give voice to the power of fasting. I love what the great preacher James Earl Massey wrote. Fasting is more than an act of abstinence. It is an affirmative act. It is a way of waiting on God. It is an act of surrender. Fasting tends to induce within us an awareness of the spiritual dimension of life. Fasting is not a renunciation of life. It is a means by which new life is released within us. And so the majority of Christian witness tells us that fasting is one of the most powerful practices by which the Spirit shapes our desires to do in us that which we cannot do on our own. So the question is, why don't we do it anymore? What is it anyway? Well, let me say a few things about what it's not before I say what it is. First thing is fasting is not the same thing as abstaining. Uh, oftentimes we'll describe giving up something like social media or, uh, or Netflix or our phones for a period of time. Those are good and valuable practices. Uh, I highly recommend doing that from time to time. They're not the same thing as fasting. They fall under the general category of abstinence, which also has a long history in the life of the church. And fasting gets at some of the same drives, but fasting is primarily about food. Uh, abstaining from something other than food may be a good option for those who cannot give up food for a variety of reasons. But second, it's not a diet plan or what we might do as part of a healthy lifestyle. Again, that's not a bad thing. That, that has its place in stewarding your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about punishing the body as though the body is the enemy of the soul. Fasting actually sees the body as an ally to the spirit. Third, fasting is not a hunger strike against God. It's not a means of trying to manipulate or coerce God to get what you want out of God. It's something that we do not enter into in opposition to God, but actually in relationship with God. It's also not a testing ground for your own willpower or your own grit. Uh, that just puts you at the center and is more about your pride than anything else. But last, fasting is not a command. Jesus never once commands his disciples to fast. He says that they will fast, but he never phrases it as a command. Like all of the practices, Jesus is not keeping a scorecard and taking off points if you don't do it and adding points if you do. So with that, at its most 
basic, fasting is an invitation to refrain from food for a set period to offer ourselves to God. Or as Dallas Willard puts it, fasting is feasting on God. And while there's no set time, the most normative fasts in the church were from sunrise to sundown. And while there are longer fasts recorded in the Bibles of two, three, even up to 40 days, like Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, all of those longer fasts that take place in the Bible are done specifically at God's initiative and God's direction uh, in preparation for some sort of call or some sort of task that God is giving them to do. For our purposes, as we're talking about it over the next four weeks, the normal fast is sunrise to sunset. I was saying to our community group leaders earlier, like, unless you have a neon sign telling you to fast for 40 days and that neon sign is hanging over a burning bush, (laughs) that's not what we're talking about here. Secondly, fasting is both a rhythm and a response. In the Old Testament, we see it as an annual rhythm, the the Jewish day of atonement to prepare the hearts for the reality of the sacrifice of their sin. As I said earlier, Jews in the first century who followed the teachings of the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and on Thursdays. The early Christians changed it to Wednesdays and Fridays to distinguish it from the Pharisaical practice and to line up with the rhythm of Jesus' own suffering, his, his, his death on Good Friday. But more often, fasting arises as a response to the events in life. In his book on fasting, the theologian Scott McKnight describes it as the natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous, sacred moment in life. It appears in the Bible in in pages like the book of Esther, when the lives of the people are threatened, the nation prays and fasts. In response to corporate or personal sin, as when the prophet Nathan confronts David about his adultery and murder. In response to the extraordinary events in life, like when Paul is confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he fasts for three days. And so this is, I want to make this very clear. The normative pattern in scripture is not, if I fast, I might get X out of it. The normal pattern in scripture is when X happens in life, God's people fast. And we have those events all the time. Mourning, loss, when we need discernment for the future. I think about an event like 9-11 or January 6th, the continued division in our nation the compounding trauma of mass shootings in our culture, the televised violence against brown and black bodies, the heinous attack by Hamas on October 7th, the devastating loss of Palestinian life in response to that. What if the natural and inevitable response from God's people was to fast and pray and not just tweet about it? Fasting is both a communal and a private practice. When Jesus talks about fasting in private on the Sermon on the Mount, he's not saying that it's something that has to be done only when other people are not looking. He's distinguishing fasting as a means of offering yourself to God from fasting as a means of virtue signaling or as a kind of spiritualized performance whereby you try to convince somebody that you are a certain type of holy person. 
It's not aimed at gaining the approval of others. It is aimed at being in relation with God. And that can be done with others or it can be done alone. Most of the examples in scripture happen in community. Our guide kind of presumes doing it in community. It's way easier to fast when other people are holding you up and you're kind of like in it together. And last, fasting is to bring about freedom. We offer ourselves to God to strengthen our souls, to free us from inordinate attachments, to join in God's justice, and to aid in our prayers. So over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be unpacking. But everything flows about the reality that we fast, ultimately to offer ourselves to God in the same way that Jesus did. The earliest Christians undertook a 40-day fast before Easter, not out of hatred of the body, not out of a desire for punishment, but simply to be with God, to train their bodies to hunger for God. Marjorie Thompson notes this, Lent represented a return to the fast that Adam and Eve broke, a life in which God was once more center and source, and the material world was again received as a means of communion with God. This is a way of hungering after God with the whole body. If hunger is the desire for something that you do not have, then fasting is a way of praying with your body, of of making your desire for God known with your whole body. And and maybe you're here and you've you've listened very, very patiently and very cooperatively and you're like, nah, man, (laughs) I like to eat, pass. Again, I would say it's not a command, it's an invitation. But maybe you're, you're here and you're like, well, I don't really feel a particular hunger for God. Well, maybe fasting will awaken that desire within you. Like all of the practices, we engage not to get something from God, but to be with God, to give our whole lives over, to awaken our our whole person to his grace and transformation. Fasting became part of my spiritual practice about 11 years ago, and it began in a response to a situation that I could not change. Uh, Every Tuesday, I had a meeting that was like walking into a buzzsaw of criticism and negativity. Maybe some of you can relate with that. I hope not. Uh, I would have trouble sleeping the night before I would go into this meeting. I I was grouchy. I was irritable. It was also one of the things where I just, I couldn't change the circumstances. Uh, The options were to continue to take the heat or to leave uh, the the church that I was currently serving in. And a few of my colleagues did, in fact, choose to leave. And that's that's where God led them to. I, I did not feel that same sense of release. I felt like my work there was still needed and uh, having exhausted my limits I began fasting from sunrise to sunset once a week on the day of those meetings in retrospect I maybe would do it the day before those meetings I, I would pray in the morning I would set the time aside uh, not so much for an outcome that would happen during that day but to be reminded in my body of my need for God to cry out with my my body for God to see me And I'd love to tell you that in the first three weeks, the heavens opened up and and, and my face just alighted with a rich, warm glow of God's grace. 
I was just hangry, really, for the first little while. But as the months went by, I gave myself over to it. Or more accurately, I gave myself over to the God who stands behind it. I gave myself over to God through it. And I began not to be anxious. I began not to weigh my relative value by the value that was reflecting back to me at this meeting. I, I didn't have so much of my thought life consumed by this person who was making my life so hard. Now the circumstances did not change at all. But I came out a different person on the other side of it. I began to find joy again. I had a friend tell me uh, sometime after a couple months of this, welcome back. I discovered what followers of Jesus have known throughout history, that we really don't live by bread alone. And I offer you that not by any means to say that I am an expert in this or to say that I've always enjoyed it. <laughs> but I've never regretted it. As I end, I just want to say, you know, like all of the spiritual practices, it's really easy to lose the why in it. It's really easy to bury the lead of fasting before you even start the why is to offer ourselves to God, to renew our souls, to participate in God's justice, to, to pray. And the first step is to discern whether or not this is for you right now. If you're, if you're pregnant or nursing, for instance, uh, sunrise to sunset fast, not in the cards for you, your body has important work to do. You can swap out any of the practices for the partial fast that's in the appendix. But similarly, if you have an underlying medical condition like diabetes or hypoglycemia or something that requires food with medication or, or if you have struggled with disordered eating, uh, it's really easy to use the spiritual practice to bypass your emotions and to convince yourself that you're growing in holiness and that's why you're doing it while you're keeping a side eye on the benefits of weight loss or as a means of dealing with shame or pain. And if you have that temptation, I would just say maybe the most transformative thing that you can do right now is have a conversation with a therapist, with a spiritual director. Again, this is invitational. Jesus will not be mad. This is a practice amid a constellation of other practices. We see in his time in the desert, Jesus fasted, but he prayed. He spent time in solitude, in silence. He memorized scripture and recited that scripture in deep communion with the one he called Father. Any of those can avoid getting tangled up with harmful thoughts about your body. The power is not in the practice. The power is in the God who comes to us that we come to through the practices. The God who made your body is a good part of the creation. The God who longs to set you free.